ask the wrong question. Where were you this weekend? Uh, before that, I was in Canberra, so the capital. And before that, I was up uh, the coast and getting some sunshine. So I've been all around. What's in What's in Canberra, and what What are you doing up the coast? Are you on holiday? I was on holiday, so um, Andrew and my daughter and I took a wee trip up um, northern New South Wales. Beautiful, stunning beaches, so very tropical. It's really nice. And then I came back for one day, and then I flew to Canberra for work. Oh, okay. and then I'm okay. back. So I it's see. been all over the show. <laughs> yeah. What's in, What's in Canberra? A Nothing. bunch of politicians who are going to kill us all. Oh, so I think I've been there, um, or at least I've been to the Canadian version of Canberra. Well, <laughs> welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil, Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 209 of the Matinee Cast. It's a movie-loving podcast of my movie-loving website, thematinee.ca, your home for cinematic passion and perspective. When I'm looking to start a conversation, uh, especially with people who I don't really know, I ask people where they'd like to go if time and money were no issue. For me, right now, the knee-jerk answer is usually an unlikely pair, specifically Sweden and Hungary. But right behind those two spots is Sydney, Australia, in part because it's about as far away from home as I can go before I start to come back. And also because it provides a gateway to a lot of other amazing spots to see around that culturally and environmentally rich country. But in much greater part, it's because it would give me a chance to spend time with several people who have come to know and love over the years on their home court. Take today's guest. Neither she nor her husband, who I also consider a dear friend, are strangers about reaching out online with jokes, hugs, and overall awesomeness. But it would be so much cooler if I could just say, see you at the pub later, and get these jokes, hugs, and overall awesomeness in person. Hashtag life goals. Instead, today and this morning, I'm sure you can hear in my voice how early in the morning it is. We are across a very long wire to Sydney, Australia. We are talking to the one-time proprietor of an online universe and to now just all-around awesome online everywhere person. Sam McCosh is here today. How are you, Sam McCosh? I'm good, Ryan. And you know that you've always got an open invitation to come here. And I would recommend June, Sydney Film Festival. Got to do it one year. Well, how how hot is it in June? If it's 38 it's now. Winter. It's winter, so you're not going to get hotter than 25. And you could get as low as 5 or 6, I guess. It's up to 25 in winter? Are you sure it's not yeah. Narnia? It's definitely not Narnia, <laughs> but yeah, it doesn't get that cold here, but we all say it's cold, and I still put on a million layers, and you would come here in a t-shirt and laugh at me. Yes, I would. I will I will definitely take that under advisement. But today, on episode 209, we will be discussing Beautiful Boy. We'll be turning the record over to play the other side, but first we need to learn more about Sam. This is Know Your Enemy. Sam is a four-time guest. Actually, Sam is a five-time guest. We did an episode where we did not do Know Your Enemy, but it was dedicated to um, our project. We were both doing 52 films by women a few uh, years ago. And uh, we, we, while we didn't do the questions during that one, um, I would actually uh, encourage people to go back and listen to it and probably even listen to previous versions of ourselves because I, I kind of feel like some of our worldview has changed since that episode about uh, a year or two ago. Two years, I believe now. 
now. But her first proper um, appearance on this show was on episode 90, where we talked about Only God Forgives. We learned that the first film Sam had ever seen in a theater was Disney's animated Beauty and the Beast. I love how now I need to add that retronym. Not not just Disney's Beauty and the Beast, but Disney's animated Beauty and the Beast because they've got a live action version now. Uh, the last film Sam had seen at the time was This is the End. The worst film she'd ever seen was Olympus Had Fallen. The unseen classic or essential was the Star Wars saga, which she has now seen and uh, several of its sequels, I'm sure. And the film that she wished she had made was Paradise Lost. Then Sam returned on episode 122 for Nightcrawler, the um, Jake Gyllenhaal film. We learned the film uh, she digs, but nobody else does, is The Skulls, the film everybody else likes that she does not, is safety not guaranteed. The last films, plural, to make her cry at the time, were Big Hero 6 and Interstellar. In the movie of her life, she would be played by Adam Scott, the character from... Parks and Recreation, and the film she was watching next was Mr. Turner, the Michael Lee movie. Finally, when Sam last appeared on episode 144, for a full episode anyway, we talked about The Martian. We learned the film that made her love of movies turn a corner was Candyman. The first date movie from University was Punch Drunk Love. Her sick day movie is Father and the Bride, Parts 1 and 2, the Steve Martin uh, remakes. And her epitaph would be, Dying is Very Difficult, from Ikiru. However, if you can count, you'll notice that that's only four questions. And I do not know why my podcasting skills escaped me, but we are going to add the fifth question into her fourth tally. So Sam has kind of been given extra homework and she's not going to answer five questions. She's going to answer six. So let us begin there. Miss McCosh, what was a film that genuinely left you speechless? The last film that left me speechless and that was The Rider, which I saw back mm. in I knew there was a reason I loved you. And I just sat there. I saw it with four of my friends um, all male, three of them were in tears. Wow. And we kind of all just sat there and like, okay, please don't bring the lights up too soon because we're all a bit fragile right now. <laughs> um, we did an episode dedicated to that film, but just in case people haven't heard it or haven't seen the movie yet, and if you haven't seen it yet, I, I would encourage you to see if you could track the movie down. I believe it's actually making the rounds on iTunes now. Tell people what this movie's about and, and why you found it so affecting. It's about a cowboy who has an injury, basically, and he can't ride anymore. And it's about him coming back to the horses and the relationship. And it's it's so much, and it's so affecting because the people in the film are playing themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's just this incredible blend of documentary and fiction and the emotion is just so raw and so real and it's just filmed in such a beautiful, soft and a caring way and I just found it just completely overwhelming and trans it really took me there and put me in their world and I felt like I'd you know, I'd been to the Midwest and at the end of it I was just like I was broken. I was so like uh yeah, emotionally crushed and built up at the same time. It was just yeah, it was so much. It's it's amazing because it's actually a very tender movie. Like it it's not any kind of um emotional porn where it's really trying to make you feel so hard. Like it's I think is there even 
Is there much music in it? I, I, I seem to remember it being no. a very quiet movie. There's some guitar no. playing from mm-hmm. the characters themselves, but there mm-hmm. is no... Yeah, it doesn't use cues, you're right, like music and other things to try and yeah. get those emotions out of you. It just naturally comes by just yeah. showing yeah. and letting and the characters a- speak themselves. Yeah, there's no, like, grand speeches, there's no big monologue. Like, I mean, there are monologues and there are that kind of, those kinds of moments, but they're all very, very subdued. It's not a film that seems designed to, 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 you know, sell Kleenex at at, at any point. But yet, like you said, I was just rocked by it. Um, I've seen it twice now. I saw it at at the film festival um, last year. I saw it at the film festival in 2017. And then I saw it again during its uh, release at the Lightbox here this year. And I haven't been able to forget it. It's, it's gorgeous. And yeah, you're, I don't, I, I think I, I it really, really just shook me that first time I saw it and, you know, it didn't hurt that I saw it alone. Um, but sure enough, that second time when I, I went and watched it again, um, we, we came away from it and podcasted almost immediately myself and Bob Turnbull. And it was, it was kind of hard to articulate a few of these things because it was just such a stunning movie. That's a very good choice. Most of my gosh, I'm, 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 I'm impressed. I got up so early for, for, for such wisdom, but let us move ahead. Hmm. <laughs> Uh, let us move ahead to round four officially now. Sam, what is a film you really dig but you never want to watch again? It's a really obvious choice, but it, I'm going to go with Grave of the Fireflies, which I've seen mm. three times, and I don't need to see it again. I don't need to go through that emotional ringer again. I know what it's about. <laughs> it's amazing. It's beautiful. It absolutely crushes me every time. And I've been there three times, so I think we're done with that movie. <laughs> this, of course, is the uh, is that one Ghibli? No. Yes. Yes. It is okay. Um, yes. I just I try, I try not to presume because every time I hear anime, I think, oh, that must be Ghibli, and I'm like, I, I don't think that's right. Um, that, that's the uh, the Studio Ghibli film. Um, it's set it's set in the aftermath of World War II, isn't it? Yes. When I was first um, kind of given uh, an anime syllabus many, many years ago um, for, for the, from like followers of the site, I remember that being one that was like put very high in the list. They said, they, they said like, don't start here. Start with some of the more magical uh, ones and some of the more whimsical ones to kind of get yourself into the headspace. But make sure you do get to this point after very short time because this is a very important movie and yeah it's it's a movie where um nothing great comes your way by the time it's all said and done and yeah i i I, you know the the animation takes a little bit of the sting out of it i think they remade it as a live action film a few years ago didn't they i have not heard about that and i'm glad i haven't i'm gonna pretend that you didn't say that <laughs> um okay uh, but i that's the thing is that i i know if, if they did do that if they if they made it as a live action version i mean that would be an incredibly tough pill to swallow because it is you i i know why you love it and i know why you've seen it a few times it's stunning it's absolutely gorgeous it's one of the best anime movies i've ever seen and has ever been made but yeah there's only so many times you can go where this movie goes um certainly as you get older like it might it might be the kind of place you can go to when you're young and you don't know any better but as you get older and you face the consequences of where this film ultimately ends you're just 
left feeling shelled, pardon the expression. Um, and, and yeah, you just don't want to go there ever again. Uh, but I bet like, I mean, you're, you're a big fan of anime. Like you probably own a copy of this, don't you? I actually don't know if I do. Oh, if, if you do, if you do collect dust on your shelf. Yeah, it's not something I go to. I do have most Ghibli films, but I'm not mm. sure that I... I might have this on DVD somewhere, like, from a long time ago, but I certainly haven't got the Blu-ray of it. <laughs> I see. Well, no, that's a very good answer, and for very, very good reason. Um, Sam, what is a film that genuinely freaked you out? Um, for this one, I'm going to go with 1996's Scream, which I oh. watched... Um, when it came out, so I was 12 years old at the time. Why um, that it was one, one of, um, well, because it was, it's just, it was not just the film, but it was the situation. So it was one of my first sort of big sleepover parties, slumber parties, you might say. Right. Yeah. So it was me and about five other girls all around 12, 11 years old at a friend's house whose parents weren't home. You know, perfect conditions dark house alone at night 12 years old watching this film which i don't know it just really freaked me out it really affected me just uh, probably like i don't know like you know when you get the giggles and it's sort of catching kind of like yeah. fear was catching among a group of young girls watching this together and holy crap i was scared and even <laughs> now scream pass like i've never quite shaken the feeling that even just looking at a screen mask all these years later i still kind of shudder a little bit and feel a bit uncomfortable about it you know oddly enough i did revisit this film for the first time in a long time uh just a week or so ago um you know it's it, it was it's october so everybody's watching all kinds of scary movies and this was one that i uh came around to and tossed on to to revisit in, in the in the spirit of the season. And I remember it a little bit better than it actually is. Uh, it is still really scary because it's pretty violent. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's one of these movies that is, um, mimicking and echoing a lot of those slasher movies from the, from the eighties. Like it's got Halloween on its brain. Certainly. And it's got, um, also like Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street on its brain. But it's really jarring now to see such a violent movie that is that continues to target women the whole way along. And I mean, it's let's remember, it's a movie where the killer uses a knife. So it's not just that it's not just that it's a film about stalking women. It's a film that's stalking women in such a brutal way and I, I remember just not even getting that far into it i think i just got into like the the third sequence and i was like i don't know if i like this anymore i kind of think that too much in the world has changed and this is kind of gross so i you know besides you finding it genuinely scary and, and not really wanting to go back there and certainly not wanting to shake up all your uh, sleepover memories but i i wonder if it's the kind of thing that you'd look at and go i don't know if i even want to think about this anymore yeah you're probably right i mean a lot of these films were made in you would say a different time which makes us sound really old but yeah certain things you you, you couldn't get away with these days yeah. definitely yeah. after you know 20 more years life experience behind me i yeah. think i probably would find some of it quite distasteful whether before i probably didn't 
have that experience so I found it scary or I didn't even notice you know things like it was all woman yeah I mean you know on, on top of that some of the plot points don't exactly hold up anymore like one of the big things that seems to set the dominoes in motion is when they when they think that Skeet Ulrich may be Ghostface Killer they they pull him aside to the uh to the to the police station because when he first came across Sydney a cellular phone shook loose from his pockets and what is a kid like that doing with a cellular phone so <laughs> you're watching it now it's like wait what what take, you know and they're like did you get the history of the phone oh not yet but we're calling the the, the phone company it's like did you try searching his history because I think that's there um yes yeah, I, I I think you're okay just leaving scream in your rearview mirror and never ever going back if you really ever do get a hanker and I'd say maybe go you know maybe rewatch Halloween or something like that but uh, leave, leave Scream where it is. Um, uh, what's the uh, opposite of this? What is a film that always makes you laugh? Uh, that would be Hot Fuzz, which <laughs> I God. can watch over and over and over again. Uh, like I'm ter- I have the most terrible memory for quotes and things. So if you tell me, like, if you ask me, oh, what do you find funny in this film? Or you know, give me a quote. I blank. You know, it's uh, my memory doesn't work that way. But every time yeah. I put it on, I'm just I can just sit there, a beer. It's like an escape, chill out, and I just I laugh. I think with that movie, you know, when you mentioned not being able to pull a quote out of the air with that movie, I think it's because a lot of the funniest bits of it aren't exactly the lines. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's sometimes just like a little throwaway thing with, um, Patty Considine and Rafe Spall, like, you know, the way they act in that movie and, and the way that they interact with, uh, with Frost and Peg in that movie. Um, the, their ridiculous mustaches and the way just the whole demeanor of the movie is what makes it so funny. Like, it's, it's incredible writing. It's, it's some of Edgar Wright's funniest work for sure. But I, I, I get you when you say, like, you can't necessarily grab dialogue and start chuckling with your friends because it seems like it's constructed in a way that's more than that. Yeah, a lot of it's the visual humor as well. The editing is so very clever in this film as they are most of his films. But yeah, you're right. It's just, it's not a, it's not a big Lebowski. It's not a film chock full of lines that everyone knows, but it's a film for me that it gives me the same, you know, consistent laughs. And I've see, probably now, seen it a good 10 times. Oh, nice. Uh, see, now <laughs> we're seeing on like Twitter or something like that, people are going to start hitting me with, with hot fuzz quotes to say, what do you mean? What about this line? Um, so please save them. I'm, I, I'm not saying it's not a funny movie or it's not a quotable movie. It's great. But I, I think the overall work of it is, um, is what makes Sam laugh so much more than, uh, than the sum total of its snappiest moments. But uh, let us move on. Um, oh, this could get interesting. Miss Makash, what is your favorite movie soundtrack? Do you know how hard this was? You know yes, how much music means to me? Yes, I do. And then I was like, <laughs> well, do you mean soundtrack with other songs or do you mean soundtrack with the original score? So I'm going to assume you mean soundtrack of other music, not original music. Okay, so my God, this took me forever. So I'm going to go with Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. 
Ah, very good answer. I, 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 you know, I have, I, I finally have a copy of that on vinyl. Um, but nice. I, I, yeah, I, I forget about that soundtrack, even though I own it. I forget about that soundtrack from time to time. It's one of my favorite films. And the first thing I always think of when I think of this movie is DiCaprio on the beach, cigarette in his mouth, sun coming up, and then the opening bars of talk show host, you know, dun, 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 and then that's the first thing I think of that movie, and it just, oh, God, I love it. I love it so much. Um, and then there's, I'm trying to remember something, like, I mean, they're like Local God by Everclear. Was, it was the theme song of this show for a while. Um, there's, there's that Kissing You, uh, slow, slow song by, by Desiree that's really, really pretty. Um, even the opening tune by Garbage. Is it Number One Crush? Is that what it's called? Yep. Right. Yeah, that one's, that one's got some great, some great licks to it. Um, it's, it's weird because in a way it's this little collection of, odds and ends from other like castaways almost from other artists like nothing really felt like it was wrote specifically for the movie maybe number one crush but i don't even think garbage wrote that specifically for the movie um and and it all comes together in this great little kind of rough draft of what Baz Luhrmann would do for Moulin Rouge. Um, and it, it all sounds so amazing. We're not even getting into the fact that this was the soundtrack that launched uh, the cardigans into the world with Love Fool. Um, oh, which, you know, I mean, there, there's a funny moment from uh, tying back to Hot Fudge. Their whole approach to Romeo and Juliet and the way they ended off with the whole cast singing Love Fool. That's a very, very good soundtrack. That's It's a very wise choice of you, Miss McCosh. I'm, like, I'm, I'm glad that even if I was able to put, even if I put you through some mental gymnastics to get there that uh, that you came up with something that good that's a good answer thank you there we go uh last but not least what is a movie you like that seemingly nobody else has heard of i hated this question ryan i'm sure you did i, I find it quite pretentious question to be honest <laughs> like i don't want to try and come up with a movie like oh god i gotta try and think of a movie no one else knows so i sound like i'm really you know, film literate. I don't know. We all have, so, no, we all have that film. We like, you know, all it takes is one film festival where the film never just seems to get picked up, but it really, really like hits you right where it counts. You know, so I actually couldn't think of anything like incredible. So I'm going to go with just a film that surprised me. That was just fun. And that was a local New Zealand film called, it was a remake actually. And it was called Pork Pie. Okay. Came out in 2017. And it's a remake of a cult classic New Zealand film from 1981 called Goodbye Pork Pie. And it's basically a crime sort of comedy caper about um, this young man, a couple of friends who accidentally become involved in a car chase that goes the length of New Zealand. That sounds All in the name incredible. of love, of course. Of course, yeah. And it's um, hilarious and fun and silly and just hits so many, like, Kiwi beats. And the remake I love because I didn't expect anything of it. And it was just, like, such a warm hug of New Zealand humor and really nostalgic without completely bathing in the, you know, the memories. And, I, yeah, it was just fun. And it's funny because the new film was made by the son of the director of the original. Oh, 
Okay. Well, I, you know, I think I'm, I'm, I'd wager that a lot of my listenership has not seen either one of those movies. So I, I don't think you're being pretentious. I think you're actually just kind of casting a light in, uh, you know, a corner of the cinema making world that we don't necessarily pay attention to, uh, on this, on this side of, uh, the world. Um, and how, sorry, how long ago was the, was the second one? Oh, so yeah, it's two the- years ago. Yeah, 2017, the new one, and the original was 1981. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, it was remade by The Sun. I uh, see. It's it. Uh, does it have like you mentioned like Kiwi filmmaking? And my brain, as as many people do, my brain goes to Takai Watiti. Is it kind of got like that sensibility to it, especially with like a road movie? Is it kind of got the uh, Hunt for the Wilder People, uh, where you know what we do in the shadows type sensibility to it? It's not. As slapstick as um, what we do in the shadows, and it's probably not quite as dry and emotional as Hunt for the World People. But there's definitely, yeah, I mean, most Kiwi humor is quite dry, so there's definitely that element, and it's quite innocent, you know? There's nothing okay. really explicit, or the humor's, it's not really making fun of anyone, you know? It's okay. quite. It's, it's, I wouldn't say a kind humor. I don't really know how else to say it, but it's not really poking <laughs> fun at people's, ex, at other people so much. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I it's, will, just, I... it's just sweet and fun and easy. Like put it on on a Sunday afternoon when you're a bit tired and you just want to relax and have a little chuckle. I will definitely go looking for that. There we go. That's more about Sam. We'll learn more about her when she stops by for a fifth visit. But for now, we have business to tend to. We're going to get into the new slang for this episode. The new slang for MatineeCast 209 is Beautiful Boy right after this. Beautiful Boy is directed by Felix Van Groningen. It's written by him along with Luke Davies, based on the book by Nick and David Sheff. It stars Timothy Chalamet, Steve Carell, Amy Ryan, and Maura Turney. Beautiful Boy is the story of the Sheff family, specifically the oldest son Nick and the patriarch David. We arrive in their lives around the point Nick should be going off to college, and instead he's going into treatment. Nick is a drug addict, and his demons have finally made his young life unmanageable. As the story goes on, Nick continues the cycle of recovery and relapse, sometimes on top, sometimes in the gutter. When he is in the gutter, David and the women try to keep trying to fight to help him get clean and sober, always to varying degrees of success. Beautiful Boy is a combative film. Its core story is wrapped in dishonesty and defies humanity and logic. What's worse, the story itself continually breaks through any steely resolve we might take against the addict at its center by plying us with warm memories and sad expressions. In short, it's challenge and emotionally exhausting. So, pop quiz, hot shot. What kept you in this fight? What made you want to pull for Nick to get his shit together? Or did you find yourself wanting to cut him loose along with his demons? Well, I was very much in um, his father's court here, being thinking of what would I feel like if that was my kid. And so I was pulling for him to get through 
from the perspective of a parent being like, oh my god, you got, what's going to happen to both of them if, if he doesn't get through? So that's what kept me going. Yeah, I mean, that was that was very much what kept me going too, was not so much, uh, you know, thinking about Nick, but just always thinking about his parents and just how hard they were they were fighting to to just be there for him you know like it it seems like with all of them it was always a real push and it was always just so draining but you could see where they wanted to go you could see what they wanted back or what they wanted to have full stop um i think though for me what really kept me in it was it's not something that I have any great experience with either personally or in my family, but I know that it's something that is so difficult to overcome as any kind of addiction and wanting to see him go through a clean stretch for a long time and be able to, you know, be able to say I'm an alcohol, I'm a, I'm a drug addict um, and, I, and I'm an alcoholic, but have it be that little bit more of a past tense. There's a stretch in this movie where he's clean for quite some time and he seems like he's a force for good in the world. Like he's speaking at the center of a, of a, of a meeting instead of being one of the people who's listening. And I felt like I'm like, okay, that's, this is why you went through that. This is, this is what you're here to do. You went through all of that other crap so that you can do some good and watching him do the good, I was like, I said, I thought that is what I feel like he's supposed to be there for. So every time his fight started to wane, I came back to thinking about the best version of Nick, the the older brother with the kids and and the the speaker for other addicts, and thought to myself, that is that is why I'm still here. I'm still here to kind of see that guy come back or that guy flourish, not the person who's struggling. Um, I, I kind of gauged your Twitter reaction earlier on this week, but um, I take it you liked this film. I liked it, but I didn't love it. Really? Um, okay. Do tell. Well, I, I liked the journey. Um, I thought it was really unpredictable and it felt true to me in fact that, like you say, it's a roller coaster. You relapse, recovery, round in circles. It's not a linear thing. No. Um, almost like someone who you know suffering from cancer or you know that comes back, things like that. You never, you know, it's always going to be there. It's always going to be part of them. And so I, yeah, I really, I like that about it. But I did find the film slightly too emotionally manipulative. Oh. Um, with the use of the memories of him as a boy. Um, I felt like the film relied a little bit too much on those to try and get you to care for Nick when it didn't really need to do that because it was obvious without using so many flashbacks how much his family cared for him, especially his father. And every time they went back, I'm like, oh, God, they want you to care about that little boy again. And it just it just pushed my buttons a little bit, but um, it worked, okay. which annoyed me a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like being told how to feel. Okay. This film told me how to feel, although mostly it was earned. So I was a little bit disappointed that it relied on those memories a little bit. 
Yeah. See, it's it's funny because I, you know, I was we're gonna kind of jump ahead to that point because I was gonna bring that up specifically as a as a storytelling device. But you're right. It mo- a lot of the time it will set up something like David, um, you know, writing one of his writing one of his pleas to a doctor or working on this article that he's worked on about his son's um, addiction, or it will take us to you know to to Nick. Um, either you know like hanging out with one of his i hate to say friends because i feel like a lot of his friends when he's uh going through uh his vices aren't really actually his friends even if he has some sort of a kinship with them or we'll go you know we'll we'll find him slumped over on a on a cafe counter and then we'll go back to to some memory of him when he was younger even just a few years ago when he was he's still as old as chalamet is but just the the bright-eyed version of himself and the film constantly has this toggle back and forth in time. Um, it is an, it is a gimmick for sure, but it got me thinking of what was keeping David and 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 his um, both his his wife and uh, Nick's mother, Karen and Vicky. What what's keeping them all? in this fight was thinking back on who this kid used to be, you know, what, um, that's what this movie wants us to, to remember is in these moments where it feels like it's just so easy to give up. So it's just so easy to cut somebody off that you have these glimmers of who they, who they once were, who they are. And that's kind of what keeps pushing you. So it's, it's kind of an obvious little pull, you know, to, to, take him back to being whatever, eight years old and rocking out in the car to Nirvana or being smaller and his father giving us the meaning of this, this hug they always have. And they always say everything and having it be that, you know, that that's, that's what he means. His father says, I love you more than everything. Um, I, 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 I went with that narrative. I, I felt like if we had just stayed in the present, this would have been, too much. I feel like you and I both would have wanted to tap out of this movie um, far earlier if it didn't take us back to happier times and remind us why this family is fighting so hard for their kid. Yeah, you're right. I don't disagree with you. Um, I just feel like just a little bit much. Mm. Just a little bit. Just a tiny bit much. Okay. Like the, you talk about you know the hug where he says, you know, I love you more than everything. So if you, if I could take all the words and the language, it wouldn't describe how much I love you because I love you more than everything. And he's saying that to him. It looks like the first time he's about to get on the plane to go to his mother's after, um, his parents have split up. So he's quite a young kid there. And oh, that got me. It really did get me. And then I kind of got annoyed at it getting me because I'm like, what does this have to do with him now? Like it's sweet and it's lovely and it shows how much his father loves him. But I'm not sure what it teaches me about Nick now. It oh. really just kind of reinforces David's love for him, which I, was gonna say, I, I think... you already. I don't know. Yeah, it was, it was like I don't know, just laid it on a little bit too thick, even though it was effective, and I think it needed some of it. But I, don't know. I mean, I, the way I think about it is, I think back to this past summer when I went to. Um, one of my cousins got married and this is the, the youngest one of the family, which is to say that she's 20 
seven. Um, but she's the first person in my life who I watched get married and I have known her since she was born. And I can honestly say I felt very, very differently at that wedding than I have at any other because I'm like, I'm watching this kid that I always knew grow up and and uh, we there's you know there, there's we're reaching the age now where we can associate with that but i'm sure there's a lot of other audiences that don't associate with it and see somebody like david as the kid waiting for the airplane they just see they just see timothy chalamet and they're like why is he fighting so hard for this you know admittedly beautiful loser uh why why is he why is he fighting so hard so i, I do think that that little device does work of it, of it jumping back in time um, to an extent. Well, let's let's talk about Chalamet though, because this is a you know this is a guy who w- is still relatively new on the scene. He uh, you know he lights up Twitter feeds and you know populates tumblers all, all over the place. Um, what do we think of Chalamet in this movie? I thought he was great. Mm. I thought he really got the highs and the lows. Um, really nailed them with out overplaying it you know mm. um, and I I felt his emotion like I felt that it was real what he was feeling I, yeah what it, did you like him yeah well, well I was gonna ask are, are you in the tank for the Chalamet are you I don't know what his fans call themselves like whatever the Chalamet version is of believers are, are you uh, are you on board with the with young Timothy I haven't seen anything I don't like of him. Okay. I'm not going to go out and get his face on a t-shirt or anything. <laughs> who, who did, wasn't it, uh, was it James Ivory that actually did that last year at the Oscars? I, I think he wore it under his suit, his tux at the Oscars, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you're, you're not that far in the tag. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I definitely, um, I, I definitely like Chalamet. I haven't seen him in too much, although I've seen movies with him in it. Like I, I, I don't remember him in Interstellar, but uh, I, you know, he's I, I liked Interstellar, so I'm sure I liked him to 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 some extent. And I do not remember him in Men, Women, and Children, but I also want to try to forget all about Men, Women, and Children in in many respects. Um, Lady Bird, of course, he plays a great little weasel, and Call Me by Your Name, he'll just destroy you. I think. What I liked about this movie is I didn't feel his his iconic role at this point, I would argue, is Call Me By Your Name. And I didn't feel like he was doing Ilio again. I felt like he was showing us something slightly different. And I I dug what he was doing. He he had this great way of um embodying where he was in his journey with addiction without a whole lot of help of wardrobe and makeup. Like that's the thing I think I like about this movie a lot is it plays on how somebody can seem generally fine from a distance, like from arm's reach, you can seem like you're okay. And then it's only kind of when you sit across the table that you realize, Oh man, they look like shit or they look like they're, they haven't slept in a week or they look like you just woke them up, even though it's, you know, three in the afternoon. And I thought that Chalamet actually really did a great job of embodying that. And not only that, but I looked at him when he was in his, like comparing his sweeter moments to his more angry and abrasive moments. And I found that he managed to always find the right version for the right moment um, and and play really well off of Steve Carell. Yeah, they had great 
chemistry um, together. And yeah, you're right about there isn't a lot in terms of makeup and you know ridiculous costumes or sets. It's very natural in that respect. And I found him in turn natural in his role. He felt like an 18 year old watching. Was- I mean, he's only a few years older than that anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but he felt like an 18 year old. Like I felt like I could. I could feel, like, smell his sweat, you know, I could, and they only opened the door of that dark room with the blinds pulled and the computer and, you know, the books and things, I felt like, oh, yeah, I can smell that room from here. <laughs> <laughs> I just, what? yeah, it, it felt lived in. I really liked when um, he, when he was in his sober period, and he came home late. Uh, he was staying with his parents and he came home late. And his father asked him to take a drug test. Mm-hmm. And he just, and he, in the Steve Crowell's, you know, he says to him, I trust you, but I need proof. And just the look on his face, mm-hmm. just the way he was like, I understand why you're asking me for this, but that is the worst thing you could have done in the world. And he says something like, that's the most contradictory thing ever. Yeah. It was his reply. But it was just the face before. It's just like this moment of crest. He was so crestfallen, but then picks himself up so quickly because he knows why his dad's asking it. And he knows his dad has good reason not to trust him. But the fact that he confirms the trust wasn't there, just this brief flicker. And it was like, oh, man. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah, it's it's a really complicated moment because you know the the rest of the movie he's been so combative and so um, just argumentative and and antagonistic with his family, who's all just really just trying to get him right. Um, he's doing he's doing what addicts do. He's he's you know playing in whataboutism and and playing a martyr and and denying and deflecting. And here we get him to this moment where his father hits on something that is absolutely positively valid and true and you know i know i know what you're saying and it makes sense and it adds up and it logically adds to to the sum that you're telling me but i still gotta ask you and you know here's a here's a kid who's given you every reaction that you can think of up until this point everything from just stoicism to abrasive argumentativeness and in that moment yeah you just watch it all wash over his face really quickly one by one and and he internalizes a lot of it it's a really yeah it's a really great moment i think for me um the moment that i loved the most in this movie is um there's a scene where he's on the phone um and and just kind of He's really, he's really close to a breakdown. He's driving from one of his parents' homes to the other parents' home and he's driving away from San Francisco and he knows that he's really, really close to relapsing. And what I love about that moment is it kind of, it's not just his performance, but it's the way that the film, um, backs up and kind of gives him this metaphor behind him. Um, he, he plays it all with the backdrop of the Golden Gate Bridge which I thought was just an amazing visual metaphor for what he's going through. Because on the one hand, it's this connection to to a much bigger, brighter world filled with possibilities and people. On the other hand, it's also grimly a symbol of darkness and suicide where people have ended their lives. And, you know, just this one 
thing behind him that that could be either either thing in that moment. It could either be if he has the strength to remain sober in that moment, he can get to the he can get across the bay and get to more possibilities. Or as his sponsor tells him, if he uses in that moment, it's all over. Like he starts at one again and it's up to him. He can stand on one edge of that bridge and decide if he wants to jump off it or walk across it. And watching Chalamet just, you know, listen and go through in that moment. It's, it's a moment where I thought that the film really served his performance really, really well. Yeah. There's a lot of conflict going on internally. Mm-hmm. in that moment for him and you know some of it's verbalized but a lot of it's like say he's on the phone he's pacing around and he's um it's in his body language as much yeah. as it's in what he says and one thing that i really liked about um the, the film um probably what i like the most about the film actually that it didn't try and blame the drug use on anything yeah, and when they asked him like, "Why do you, why did you do this?" and he said, "Well, when I tried it, I felt better than I ever had," and it never tried to look for a crux. Like it never tried to say, "Well, he's from a broken family and the divorce screwed him up," and it, and or he, you know, he had so much money that he was just irresponsible, or it never looked for blame. It was just a kid who experimented. You know, he's possibly, a, you know, a little bit. Um, I, no, I'm not going to say he was depressive, but you know he was creative, and he probably went to some dark places in his writing and his drawing, and the the um, drugs gave him some light that wasn't there, but it didn't look for blame, and yeah. I really like that about the film. Yeah, me too. Because I, you know, back when I was saying that this film runs the risk of being misery porn, that's usually where a lot of these movies get their their thrust is they'll say, well, you know, here's a person who, here's a person who was abused or here's a person who, uh, comes from addicts, like who, who has addiction in their, in their blood, or here's a person who has nothing. And, and here was a person instead who has all of those things. (laughs) doesn't have all of those things. Here's a person who has every opportunity and has all the love a person could want aside from the fact that apparently his you know his his birth parents uh don't love each other uh enough to to keep their marriage going anymore but aside from that he and you know and and his family his father remarried and he has siblings now he has everything a person could want and still this is the kind of thing that affects him um i i felt that that was that was an important thing to to bring into this is that it's not just something that's going to affect the other that it can affect somebody who has every, seemingly everything um where i think this movie actually gets things right is that could in the wrong hands be a turnoff you could look at this story and say to yourself well you know this is a story of circumstances and this is a story of resilience and this is a story of not wanting to lose a fight to an illogical opponent. But at the same time, it's also a story of privilege. This is a story where two parents have the means to put their child into inpatient therapy for months on end. And there are so many people around the world who just do not have that opportunity and who will, you know, just succumb to these kinds of demons. Um, Here is a family who has not given up on their kid. And there are a lot of families out there who did. And, and and 
people fall further into addiction. So it could in the wrong hands be looked at as, oh, poor rich white boy. But somehow through just this overwhelming um, amount of humanity, um, it manages to get our empathy up and, and portray this as a very, very human story, not so much just a story of privilege. Yeah, you're right about it, though, that it definitely can be viewed that way. These are very wealthy people um, who live in a wealthy house. I believe the house was actually in Big Little Lies. Yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so it's uh, really wealthy. I mean, they've got a ridiculous amount of money, and then um, he's got links through to doctors and other things through his work. Um, he can pull out the New Yorker and such and, you know, doors open. So it is very much a film. A, it is Part of it is its circumstances. But like you say, it's the humanity and the universal themes in there, the loves, things like that, that lift it beyond, you know, its setting. Yeah. So I, I mean, can definitely see that it could be a turn-off to some people. It could. And, and, you know, if a person brought that up, I'd say, yeah, absolutely. I, I totally understand exactly what you're talking about. And I wouldn't argue it because it's, it's all right there. It, you know, if this was, if this was a lot of other families in the world, it would turn out very, very differently. Um, you know, while we're talking about flaws of this movie, I, I do have to admit that there was one flaw in the movie and it's kind of no surprise because it's based on the book that Nick and David wrote after they went through this experience together. Um, but in possibly in that book, I haven't read it, although I, now I am curious about it, but certainly in the way that this film approaches it, um, the, the women kind of take a back seat, Vicky and Karen, um, um, Nick's birth mother and his stepmother. Um, they are, they are, you know, they are hip deep in the fray for sure. In, in, in just about every way that mother and stepmother could be. And yet it feels like the movie elbows them aside every time it needs to, to get back to David. Am I crazy here? Or did it really feel like it didn't give the women their due? Yeah, you're not crazy. I mean, it's, it is David's story. So it's based on two books, the film. Um, It's based on the book, by David about the his journey through his son's addiction, and then it's based on Tweak, which is the book by Nick about his experiences. So it's based on the experiences of two men. Okay. And it's it's really I'd say the film is kind of David's film. Yeah, David's very much. experiences of Nick. So I understand why. Um, I thought that Karen got a much better break than Vicky. So. And you showed, and um, one of the flashbacks that I did appreciate was it showed Karen coming into the family and how important Nick was to David and how she embraced him and how he was part of their wedding. And I thought that was quite nice to cement, actually, you know, this isn't a film about us, again, saying there's no the, the no blame thing we were talking about earlier. This isn't a film about, oh, he remarried and I hate my stepmother and hate my, you know, new siblings. Mm-hmm. Wasn't that at all. Um, so I thought that was, you know, I liked that about it, but I thought particularly his mother, his birth mother, got a bit of a short shrift, particularly the fact that she took over his main care for a good year or two of his um, battle. 
Well, I mean, it starts even straight from her introduction because Amy Ryan spends the first two thirds of this movie being a disembodied voice on the phone. We never, we don't see her until, until Nick goes to live with her for a while in Los Angeles. And I feel like that's a bit of a cheat. We spend all this time with David and him as a child, no time with Vicky and him as a child. So we have no idea what his relationship is with his mom um, until, until, you know, we, we see her become a part of his recovery. And I know that this is told from, you know, that it's told from the boy's point of view, but I, I really feel like there's, there's more story to tell here and there is time to tell it. It's not a very, very long movie. Um, as far as Karen is concerned, that end of this story, I believe is fascinating because she's, as, as you said, like she's the step parent. She was the one who embraced not only this man as her partner and her, her lover, but also his son as her new family. And there's never a point where we question her involvement. Like, I mean, you know, like they, they have two more children themselves together and you never hear them referred to as my stepbrother, my stepsister. They're, they're all, you know, they are siblings. This is one unit whose pieces came from various directions, but she is always, always, always 100% in this right up until something I don't really want to spoil, but the end of this movie where Karen really has to get into the muck and she does in just this really fraught way. I, I feel like the you know the the tale of Karen and Vicky is a whole other movie that could have been possibly even better. Possibly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll never know unless there's another book floating around that we mm -hmm. don't know about. Mm -hmm. But before we got going, we talked how we're not really going to talk about the end of this movie. But um, I, I do want to ask one kind of hypothetical question. Now, now you know, this, this movie is based on, like you say, two books, um, one by David and one by Nick in real life. So we know that Nick is okay, uh, that, that, that Nick lives. So, you know, to, to, to put it that way, I have no idea how okay he is in the grand sense of things. But... Um, based strictly on what we see on screen did you get the impression that he was going to be okay i didn't know yeah but what i did know was that his family would ever be there for him no matter what and even if that wasn't in the same hands-on way that they were earlier in the film or mm -hmm. earlier in his experience i what the film left me with was just the complete knowledge that he was loved and supported and I I wasn't sure how it would go and I think they weren't sure how it was going to go but they were there for it. I kind of feel like, one, I feel like I'm very much in the same boat but two, I actually really feel like that is what leads this film to succeed so much because it's not a clear-cut overcoming of obstacles we we walk away from this movie um with with nick's journey still being very much in flux we have a scene in this movie where he as i said earlier is speaking in front of uh, a group of addicts and he's he's <laughs> taking more of a a leadership role in in group and, you know, he's the one who's talking about what he used to go through and where he's at and what he can do and what he's capable of now. But it's back in the middle of the film and he backslides again 
after that. He backslides pretty hard too. Um, and not only does he backslide really hard, but David starts to try different tactics that are less hands-on. We see him putting family photos away and we see him not running to help his son uh, the way that he used to. And you know, that all goes about the way you think that that would go. And I, it's, it, it left me thinking to myself, I have no idea based just on what I've seen on screen, forget about what actually happened in the real world. I have no idea how this family is going to deal with this cycle. And, and I think that actually makes for a better movie. I believe that the movies that end with these great big totems of hope, you know, where, where the person is leading the meeting or, you know, we get that little crawl at the end of, you know, and then they were clean and sober, which, you know, we do get a crawl at the end of this movie. Um, but I, I feel like this end, where this film leaves us is much more um, ambiguous. You're hopeful, but at the same time, you, your, your hope is checkered. And I, I think that's really what, left me wondering if he was going to be okay for starters and what makes this a better film. Yeah, it definitely doesn't come to this nice neat bow and you don't, doesn't have him in this triumphant moment. You know that the journey is ongoing. Yeah. And it leaves you hopeful that there will be a journey. Yeah. But you, you and that his family will be there for him. But like you say, how will they cope with it? How will he do? You don't know. And you're right, it is the strength of the film that it doesn't feel the need to make it nice and neat. Well, it lets it feel real. Yeah, and I think what a lot of that comes back to is when he is having that clean moment in the meeting, he talks about waking up in a in a hospital room and somebody confronting him asking what his problem is. And he says, I felt really proud of myself because for the first time I was able to say, I'm, I'm a user of drugs and alcohol. And the person said, no, 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 that's what you're doing about it. What's your problem? And he never actually articulates what his problem is. And I think that for me was what left me so worried about him and and worried that this wasn't over and not sure that he was going to be okay because he doesn't even really this this movie doesn't ever get into articulating what his triggers are and why um it just it just paints him as this person who's on this cycle and can stay on top for very long stretches of time and for all i know you know since the movie ended he's been very clean for a very long time but he's always at risk of getting back into things. And that's the way this movie ends. Like this movie ends on, on this ambiguous little note and sitting in two chairs and walking through a rehab facility, but without telling you the answer to that question of what's your problem. Well, we will go on to the souvenir. We end every review here on the matinee cast with a souvenir, something tangible or intangible. If you could take away from this movie and keep, you would. Sam Akash, what would be your souvenir from a beautiful, from, there's no definite article. What would be your souvenir from Beautiful Boy? Uh, it would have to be the song Territorial Pissings by mm. the Why that one? Because it's a song of my teenage years. It's exactly what it's portrayed in the film. It's blasting it in your car and headbanging and screaming. And I know it's just fun. It's a fun song. It's it's trippy in this movie to see David in that moment is like he's like seven, I think, 
and just going for it in that moment. You know, like he's sitting in the car listening to it with his dad. His dad gets it. Um, I, I don't know how old Steve Carell is supposed to be in that moment, but Steve Carell just seems like perpetually 40 for me or older. So <laughs> it's kind of hard to imagine him ever being like Nirvana was my music. I'm sure it probably was too. Like Steve Carell is probably right around the age where Nirvana was his. Um, but, uh, yeah, watching young David just lose it in the, in the shotgun seat while territorial pissings plays on the radio. That's a pretty good one. Um, I, I'm certainly a sucker for a, a good soundtrack moment. So I, I, uh, I'm, I'm very impressed with that choice of souvenir mine though um probably won't surprise a lot of people i want nick's sketchbook um nick is a very artistic and articulate uh young man and he creates there's all over his bedroom there's these paintings that are just really twisted and bright and disturbing sometimes and 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 very very kooky in other ways but in his sketchbook um there's a lot there's smaller versions of these same sorts of drawings there's writings of his that are sometimes really just articulate and and um to the point and other other ways are like more illustrative and and whatnot and it's just it's a beautiful work unto itself I, i'd even just if, if it still exists i would actually like to see the original one, but that, that is a, a totem of who this man, who this boy is that I would absolutely love to keep if I could get my hands on it. That's a really nice choice. And mm. I think the moment in the film when Steve Carell's character finds the book and flicks through it is pretty heartbreaking. It is. But also it is. beautiful. It's yeah. really beautiful to see the, to see the things that he couldn't give the words to. It's on and, paper. Yeah, and again, it's a it's a it's a moment where this movie really shows what it's made of because a lesser movie would make the the reading of a diary into something melodramatic and over the top and this movie just plays it straight and lets it really affect us and really break our hearts just by reading these words and imagining them in Nick's voice. It's it's a really really powerful moment. Um which is probably why I want that you know, that kind of moment as my keepsake. But we rate here on the matinee cast on a scale of one to four stars. Sam Akash, what do you give Beautiful Boy on a scale of one to four? Uh, two and a half. Maybe. What? Are you kidding? Nope. So, so wait, all these, like all these little shortcomings and all these failings that, that almost, that almost sunk the movie for you. I don't like emotionally manipulative things, but the things that worked for this film were really good. Okay. So, wow. Okay. Um, I can let the some of the you know inner workings that I don't necessarily agree with go because I still think that the thrust of the film um, was really good and the wow. performances were excellent and the yeah. But, but I like. So but you feel like it was overall messy. Wow. Okay. I see. I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum. I'm, I'm actually giving this thing a four despite its shortcomings because I feel like some of the shortcomings were from the movie I wanted versus the movie I got. And I don't think that that's fair. This movie I found was just deeply, deeply affecting and, and hit all the right notes in a story that could have been really cliched and just and got me. So I, I, this, this is one of the best films of the year for me. Um, warts and all. Um, and, uh, and yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe people are listening or, and they're somewhere in between. Maybe they're people who like 
either love it even more than I do and they're wondering why I was so hard on it or people absolutely hate it and they're wondering why you're being so kind to it. Um, but I'm kind of curious. Like, This is a movie I want more and more people to see because I really want to talk about it um, as the year goes on. And I feel I hope we will be talking about it as the year goes on. Um, but hey, uh, maybe maybe you agree with Sam. Maybe you think that this movie is just okay. Um, maybe you think uh, I'm, I've got it closer. This is a, an amazing film. Let us know what you think. Ryan at the matinee.ca Twitter or on matinee underscore CA or Facebook.com slash dark matinee what do you think of beautiful boy we are going to take a quick break right now though we are going to flip the record over and play the other side right after this so come on back We're back. She's Sam McCosh. I'm Ryan McNeil. It's Matinee Cast 209. We've been talking about Beautiful Boy. We are very quickly going to go down the road of the other side, flip the record over, play what's there. Uh, there's, there's CDs all over this movie, and you know the sad thing is you couldn't flip those over and play the other side. Um, we are also going to keep this a little bit brief just because of the hour and our collective help. Miss um, McCosh, get us going. What, uh, what further material did you think of that could make uh, good further reading after this movie? Well, first I've got a little bone to pick with you because okay. I had absolutely no intention of seeing this film until <laughs> you asked me to be on the podcast. Okay. And the reason is that one of this director's previous films is probably in my top five most hated films that I've ever seen in my life. Broken Circle Breakdown? Oh, God, I hate that film. I love that movie so I much. I hate that movie. Oh. It is one of the what is wrong with you? Oh, God, it is so manipulative. Yes. It is so unnecessarily cruel to its characters. And it, oh, God, it A made me world, cry. Sam. And then I raged after I was so angry. <laughs> and I hate that movie. And when I'm like, I look and I'm like, oh, no. Oh, God, I really would like to chat to Ryan. But, man, I not want to see a film by this director ever. Well, I did I, it for I, you, Rock. I... I... <laughs> <laughs> I do appreciate that. I, I, I owe you a beer or three. Um, I, it's, it's funny because the Broken Circle Breakdown was going to be one of the films I mentioned as as further reading. Um, we did a, we did a really good episode um, dedicated towards it, myself and Corey Atad. Um, it was Matinee Cast 99, I believe. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that's a movie I still adore. You're right. It is manipulative in many ways, and it is brutal. Um, in, in a lot of ways, too. Um, I'd say if people want to get into it, they should probably give the synopsis a skim and get what they're getting into out of the way because it's, it's not going to take you anywhere particularly happy. Um, but uh, <laughs> I guess there, there's, a little, there's a little sign of our friendship divide. One of us adores that movie and one of us can't stand it. Um, I, you know, I think for me, one of, the, um, one of the first movies I thought about when I came away from this movie was... Um, and it's actually it's it's appropriate that back in the know your enemy section that you were talking about Romeo and Juliet because I've got another Leonardo DiCaprio movie. I got to thinking about Basketball Diaries from I believe that was 1995 that movie, and that is the kind of story of addiction that I think the world is a little bit more used to the really slow, dark descent down the spiral where, you know, shit happens and then shittier things happen and then shittier, shittier things happen until you're 
trembling on a men's room floor in a bus station. Um, I, 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 I was happy that this movie didn't become that story as much as I, I actually think I'm pretty sure there's a copy of it sitting behind me on the shelf. Yeah. So I have this movie that I'm talking about, not, <laughs> not appreciating so much anymore, but I, I feel like movies like that kind of romanticize the addiction, um, to, to a younger audience and make it seem like it's this darkly poetic or thing or this poetically dark thing. Um, and I was happy that this movie didn't do that. As much as I do appreciate Basketball Diaries and think that it is worth a watch, certainly as a counterpoint, um, I, I, I feel like it's the story of, of teenage addiction told in a much more romantic way. I think it's also a bit more like linear is where we talk about this film. Um, sorry, we talk about Beautiful Boy as addiction being kind of cyclic, relapse and get better. And, you know, this film's a little bit more of a straight yeah. narrative. And it's also got a bit more of those traditional um, triggers mm-hmm. for for addiction where Beautiful Boy doesn't have that one or two, you know, triggers. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, what else did you come up with for, uh, for other side material for Beautiful Boy? Uh, well, something I was thinking about with, um, with David, um, Steve Carell's character was the fact that he was a journalist. The way he approached, um, Nick's illness was quite methodical. Mm-hmm. You know, he wanted to learn and he did a lot of, um, research. He was constantly at his computer looking up researches on what the effects of the drugs were and what it did to his brain. And he used his connections to get into a doctor, things like that. And even at one point he takes the drug just so he can get the experience to try and understand what Nick's talking about. And it made me think of Spotlight mm. and the way that um, how journalists have to be really methodical and, and in many ways take emotion out of it when they're investigating quite tough things. And so in this, in Beautiful Boy, it was his son's own addiction. And then in Spotlight, we've got, um, you know, systematic child sex abuse. Um, which obviously is a very traumatic subject and the journalists investigating this in many cases they knew the churches or they knew people involved so it was personal for them as well but they were very methodical about that how they went about their investigation and that's kind of what I felt when I was watching David the way he was investigating Nick's illness yeah, we, we didn't dig too much into that on the show. I did touch upon that quite a bit on the written piece. So if you, you know, if you, if you don't mind hearing me talk about, uh, Beautiful Boy a little bit longer, please do go to the site and, and take a look at the review for this film because I talk about how David takes this methodical, logical approach to the enemy that is, his enemy that is addiction and how that doesn't matter that, that, that how addiction has no regard for logic and does not care that you want to approach it mathematically and try to understand your enemy for a better uh, hope of, of defeating it. It's, it's not that kind of, of opponent as far as movies like spotlight and this movie are concerned. What I like about them both is, you know, we are, we are in a very, very strange place in the world where, the press is this other and the media is this other and people seem to want to blame them for a lot of where the world is at and and people don't understand what the media and the press actually do 
um, you know, aside from talking on TV and, and how they go about it and how how the rules are set out and how, how they're trained to get to the truth. And I feel like seeing it in action in a movie like this, or certainly in spotlight and spotlight. Absolutely. Because the Marty Baron character in, um, in spotlight, of course, who is, who is an actual person, he keeps pushing his team to do more and do more and do more. And he's like, if we, he's like, we have one swing at this, we can't half tell this story. We have to tell it to the furthest limits of our talents and our investigative skills, because once it's out there, it's out there. And if we get any of it wrong or we short sell ourselves, that's it. You know, we're not going to be able to take this swing again. And yeah, you know, like I, it, David isn't working in quite the capacity of spotlight, but it, it's the same sort of thing. He he's d- using his skills to get deeper and deeper into the truth, and it's a really really good companion movie um, to get an idea as to how journalists approach any any problem, whether it's a problem that they're telling a story about or a story that affects their lives. Um, it's it's a really interesting mindset um, that a lot of us don't have. I think one more movie that I'll talk about before we uh, wrap this up is a movie I don't remember tremendously well, but I do remember also being deeply affected by it. Um, when was the last time you watched Rachel Getting Married? Uh, I've watched it once, and it was <laughs> probably three or four years ago. Oh, you didn't even see it when it first came out? No, no, I watched it on um, streaming. Yeah. Ah, I see. Um, Anne Hathaway's uh, Oscar-nominated performance. Um, it's a story of she's an alcoholic and a drug user, and she is uh, she gets out of rehab, uh, inpatient rehab, for just a few days so that she can go to the wedding of her older sister, um, played by Rosemary DeWitt. And... It's a story where the family um, association with addiction is really explored. This amazing film by Jonathan Demme. It's not flashy. Um, if anything, actually, it's, it's incredibly subdued. Um, it's, a, it's a really kind of like low-budge, low-glamour uh, type of movie um, where it explores the effects of, you know, not so yes the the effects of the disease on the addict but also more to the point the effects of the disease on the family who are just trying to live their lives that's the thing is like you know we we talked about how in this movie there was nothing in the background for nick to really point to and say see that's where i went wrong and that's where my whole thing started and that's where this all started to slip but you know we forget that he has two younger siblings who have just witnessed all of this shakedown before like either of them is what 10 years old so it's the kind of thing that's probably going to burrow into their heads somehow and they're going to have to deal with it just like in rachel getting married we've got you know all of this water under the bridge that rachel and her sister kim have to deal with her their father paul is still dealing with a lot of it um her mom abby played by deborah winger it's it's a really wonderful little movie that's not exactly a happy watch, but I think is still a very worthy watch if you want to get into the mindset of how addiction affects the circle around the addict. It definitely benefits from putting 
with the the setting of the film being the wedding and then being at the one house, mm-hmm. putting all those people with all of those memories and all of the the issues that come with them in the one place uh, definitely lets you explore them in an interesting way. Yeah. Um, which you don't get so much in Beautiful Boy because it's a bit more spread out. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I yeah, definitely the family dynamic, it's kind of like supercharged in this film because it's like she's not around them normally. Like you say, she's just got out for the short stint. And then there's all these people that don't normally live together for this yeah. one place, for this yeah. wedding, which weddings, as we know, are emotional family events anyway. <laughs> so it's like... Everything supercharged. What are you talking about? Mine was and a breeze. Out. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and it's all, like I mean, and it's also really this um, straightforward, um, low not low budge, but but a much um, more subdued approach to the whole thing. Because I mean, Beautiful Boy is a handsome, very very big movie. It, it doesn't seem that way at times, but like I said, this is a movie that really has no qualms about driving down the road and turning up the Neil Young and letting all kinds of sunshine and daylight into this movie. Whereas Rachel getting married is much more, um, gray and confined and, and, um, smaller. It's a much more intimate movie than I think the beautiful boy is. So I think it's, it's really worthwhile, um, checking out to get another side of this whole, journey that we went through with beautiful boy and that we went through on episode 209 but that is episode 209 of the matinee cast i'd like to thank sam akash for dropping by and being my guest come on back on monday november 19th for episode 210 we will be discussing widows um sam as i said earlier on in the show was more a prolific writer before now she kind of barbs on twitter um and gets on about much more pressing things than movies uh in her life but if people want to follow you on twitter and uh tell you about how wrong you are about beautiful boy where can they find you don't want to hear about it but if you want to come and talk to me about something else or if you want to recommend you can find me at sam underscore mccosh that's m-c-c-o-s-h i i miss by the way when you were sakura at, at on twitter i i miss those days i'm sorry the, yeah. you know grow up i know i know one of these days i'm we boring <laughs> I, I will get around to growing up one of these days, but uh, right I now, want to see? Want me to tell you about the comic book I bought last week? Please do. All right. My site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them on Spotify. Spotify, Spotify, Spotify. Please subscribe. Um, you can find them on Stitcher Radio, Blueberry, Apple's podcast app, Pocket Cast, which Miss McCosh got me into using as a platform, and, and the iTunes Store, um, along with Google Play. Uh, everything gives you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. Feedback on Beautiful Boy or any of the other films we talked about on the other side can be left in the comment section on the site. You can email Ryan at thematinee.ca, uh, Twitter, Ryan Matinee underscore CA, or Facebook.com slash Dark Matinee. Ms. Bakosh, any thoughts before I let you go and cough your way to sleep? If you want to go and watch something funny after watching these things about abuse and journalism and things like that, maybe watch Despicable Me. Steve Crowell being a great dad. <laughs> Good. Co- we should use that for the other side. What's wrong with us? For Sam, I'm Ryan. We'll see you at the matinee.